this is um, Luke chapter 20. We're going to be uh, actually in verses 1 through um, 19. And um, so we have a lot, a lot of scripture here, a lot of scripture to read, and we're going to go through it um, as efficiently as we can here. So uh, Luke chapter 20, starting here in verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was, that ba- was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went to an, into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully. And they sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, the one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they drew him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyards to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are thankful to be in your house. We thank you, Lord, that we come here, Lord, to hear your word, uh, to sing praises to you, Lord. You are our holy God, and Lord, we are redeemed, we are delivered Sinners who have been made holy ones of God because of your great grace through your son, Jesus, Lord. We come here to hear your word as well. We come, Lord, to be challenged, to be taught, to be discipled. Lord, to, we would leave this day trusting you more than we did when we walked in this door. Lord, we praise you. We pray for those who are sick and who are out. We pray, Lord, that you would heal them and bring them back to us, Lord. We pray for those who are, who are away, who are traveling, or Uh, For whatever reason, they're not with us, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would bring them back, uh, unify them with your church, with your people. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The title is, uh, Do You Feel in Charge?, which is a quote from The Dark Knight Rises, the the last of the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy. Um, Me and uh, 
Robert especially, uh, like Bane. I don't, Bane was the villain in the movie, and the reason why we like him is because he kind of has like a cartoonish voice that's kind of funny, and so uh, all his kind of like his, his quotes from the movie are kind of fun to just kind of, they're kind of one-liners, and they just kind of quote the movie because he has such that cartoonish voice. And uh, a lot of other comedic groups online have used the villain for Batman as kind of the center of comedic uh, skits and things like this. Well, there's a scene in the movie where uh, kind of this suit guy, who's kind of an executive, I guess, and uh, who's kind of in alliance with the villain, uh, basically yells at Bane and has an issue with him. And Bane basically just kind of rests his hand, and Bane's a very strong character, very strong, very powerful, very intimidating, because he has this big mask on, he has that cartoonish voice, and he just kind of lays his massive hand on his shoulder and says, do you feel in charge? Basically saying, like, do you think you're actually in charge of this? Look at me. Look at my, look at my strength. Look at, look at everything about me. Do you really, you're not afraid of me? Like, who do you think's actually in charge? I'm in charge. And that's basically, I think he ends up like kind of killing the guy right there and there because he's really in charge. He's the one that has authority of their kind of their scheme and their plan to destroy the city. Um, and, and this idea of who's in charge, who, who really has authority? In this particular uh, passage here, the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, the chief priests and the scribes and the, and the elders, these prominent people we see in the passage before, they believe that they're in charge. They believe that they have authority and they have issues with Jesus. And this has been kind of a, an issue even throughout the history of the church is who, who truly has authority in God's kingdom? Who truly has authority in the church? Some would say that the Pope has authority over the church. Uh, if, I don't know, some of you I, I know who have been listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, a church that was in Seattle that fell in 2014. The church uh, kind of collapsed because the pastor, Mark Driscoll, the founder of Mars Hill, uh, resigned. And there were some issues. And they did this, they've done, they've, uh, Christianity Today has uh, released this podcast, and it just kind of tells the story of the rise and then the fall of this church. And really what you learn in the story of Mars Hill is there's a crisis of authority. Mark Driscoll believed that he had all authority over his church. That basically whatever he said should happen. Whatever issues he has with people should be dealt with. Uh, this is kind of the, the introduction quote to every episode that Mike Cosper, who's the host of the podcast, says. He said, the story of one church who grew from a handful of people to a movement and then collapsed overnight. It is a story about power, fame, and spiritual trauma. Problems faced across the spectrum of churches in America, and yet it also a story about the mystery of God working in broken places. Really, the story of Mars Hill is this, the de devastating consequences of the misuse of power, or the misuse of authority. Uh, there's a quote from the first episode that Mark Driscoll said, and that gets a little bit of laughs, but it's a kind of troubling quote. He says, there's a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. And by God's grace, by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. He's thinking that people who basically got in my way and got in a way of my authority, and then we either kicked out or they ran away, that is, the, that is by God's grace. So that is good that that has happened. Would you kind of get this 
this feeling that Mark Driscoll believed that he had ultimate authority, that he had ultimate power over the church. And I'm not trying to compare Mark Driscoll to the Taliban, but what we're having going on in the world today and what we're being reminded of is the misuse of authority. In the Taliban, uh, Mulad Omar, who started the Taliban and who, who basically took over Afghanistan in 1996 and ruled that country until 2001 until the United States came in and took over, and now the Taliban has come back. And in 1996, when the Taliban took over, one of the reasons why they were successful is because the people of the, of the nation were, were tired of the crime and the corruption of their country. And this happened in the post-Soviet era civil war. And so the Taliban brought in very strict Islamic rules, which banned uh, girls going to school, which forced women, if they went outside, had to wear full burqas. Not one hair of their body could be shown outside. Currently, right now, women that are under the age of 12, um, that are above the age of 12, that are unmarried, are being taken and adopted and basically have to serve as wives to Taliban fighters. Searching homes and offices and phones, looking for incriminating information is what the Taliban is doing currently. They believe they have ultimate authority and that they are ruling over the people and taking all rights and privacy from the people. We have stories of the abuse of authority and power all around us. In the church, in government, in the world. Misuse of authority by the Jewish leaders, even in, this, in, this, in, the, in, the, in the gospel story, in the time of Jesus, is an issue. They have conflicts with Jesus, was based fundamentally on his actions uh, and his defying actions to their authority, as we saw with the temple cleansing the week before, right? He comes into the temple, and what does he do? He tosses them aside. He believes he has the authority to do that. That Jesus believed that he had the authority by God, to cleanse the temple. The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem have a problem with those defiant actions. What gives you the right? Who does Jesus think he is to do what he did? The issue of who is actually in charge has been the central issue of Israel's history and ultimately humanity as a whole. Who's actually in charge? Is Am I in charge? Is God in charge? Is the king in charge or is God in charge? Is the priest in charge or is God in charge? Is the president or the king of the government in charge or is God in charge? God is in charge. He was the Lord over the garden and over Adam and Eve. He was the Lord over Israel. He was the Lord over Jerusalem and the Jews during Jesus' day. He is the Lord as well over the church from the first century In the 16th century, in the 21st century, he is in charge. He is the Lord. His word alone has authority, not a man or a committee or a list of traditions or church law. No, no, Jesus is the Lord over the church. Any belief or view that that believes that authority or has equal authority or rivals an authority with God and his word is presented as a conflict of authority, that, that be, meaning that there is a conflict, that there is a group or there is a person or there is a group of churches or whomever who believe they actually have more power or have authority over God. 
God, the scriptures alone, have authority over the church and over your actual life. God alone and God's scriptures alone has ultimate authority over the church and over your life. So here's the the main point. Christ, who clearly was demonstrated as the Son of God by miracles and John the Baptist's testimony, is the cornerstone by which salvation of the church solely rests. Christ, who clearly was demonstrated as the Son of God by miracles and John the Baptist's testimony, is the cornerstone by which salvation of the church solely, solely rests. Not in works, not in following traditions, but in Christ alone. So here's the first point. By what authority? By what authority? So again, Jesus is teaching in the, in the temple. Remember, he's already cleansed out the temple, and we learned in the last passage that he was daily teaching in the temple. So I, looking at this from a kind of day-to-day kind of way, on Sunday, he came into uh, through the triumphal entry. He came into Jerusalem. Monday, he cleansed the temple. And now Tuesday, he is preaching the gospel or the good news in the temple. And this is where this debate or this dialogue with the, the, the chief priests and the scribes and, and these group of people is happening. So it's on Tuesday. So Jesus is t- teaching in the temple. He is now taking ownership over God's house. He has cleansed out these guys. He, he's pushed out the money changers, and he is teaching to the people. He's proclaiming the good news to all the people. We, we see this, this phrase, the good news. We see even all the way back in Luke 4.18, which I said is the thesis statement of Jesus' ministry. He's proclaiming the good news to the poor. This good news is a news of triumph. It's a news of redemption. It's a news of spiritual rebirth. It's also a news of adoption, that we were once orphans, and now through Jesus, we are called sons of God. Sons of God. And if you are a woman in here, you're like, well, why not daughters? Well, sons are the firstborn, right? The, the, all the inheritance of the, of the master went to the firstborn, which means you as a woman or of a male in Christ, are a firstborn uh, of God. You receive the inheritance of God. You have been adopted. You have full authority. You are a co-heir with Christ. So Jesus is teaching and proclaiming this good news to all the people, not just to the rich, not just to men, not just to the old, but to all people, to men, women, poor, rich, slave, free, old or child. Here's this good news. This good news is for all people. It's important to remember that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people. And so what do we do as a church, as people? We proclaim the gospel to what? All people, right? To every person. We proclaim the good news. And so these, I call them the three stooges, the chief priests, the scribes, and these elders, He's just kind of like, if you wanted to kind of create like a a cartoon image of them, you think of like villains or henchmen from Disney movies, right? Just these kind of like, oh, they're just kind of lowly, they're just kind of annoying, and they're always out to, to do something villainous or bad. These three stooges, these henchmen come to Jesus, and they say, tell us, by what authority do you do this? By what authority do you do the things that you do? And really what they're specifying, what authority by which are you believing that you have the authority of the right to come into our, into our temple and clear it out? We have authority over the temple, not you. Or by what, who gave you this authority? 
Who, did some king, did some emperor, who gave you this authority to go in and, and do what you want to do by cleansing out the, pushing out the money changers and, and pushing out those who are selling animals? They believe Jesus is a false prophet. And that's why they're asking him this question. They're saying, where, where do you get your authority? And they're, they're hoping, he says, by human authority, ah, oh, so you're actually a fraud. Because you say you're from God, but you're saying you're, your authority comes from man, so which one is it? You're a hypocrite, you're not consistent. Or actually, if he says from God, then they'll go, well, no, you can't be from God. We are the ones that determine who is from God and who is not from God, and therefore you're a blaspheming and you're a false prophet. So they're trying to create this, 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 this situation, this trap for Jesus, and that's why they ask him this question. Well, Jesus takes the offensive, right? He doesn't answer their question. He asks them a question. There's a great book um, called Tactics. It's a book about evangelism. Um, it's a very good book, and it, it talks about uh, if you're ever in a conversation, you're ever in a situation where you're talking to someone, and, and you want to know what they believe, instead of assuming what they believe or trying to figure out what they believe through study, just ask questions, right? Uh, let the burden of proof be on them to explain what they believe, and not always just be someone who answers people's questions, and instead asking questions, be offensive, take, take the offense as Jesus does here. So Jesus presses his opponents. He says they come to him, they confront him, they have issues with him, they want to kill him, but they're afraid of the people. And so they ask him these questions, but then he responds with, well, I have a question for you. I'll, I will ask you a question. He says, tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Why does Jesus ask him this question? Well, it puts them in a trap. Because the people loved John the Baptist. And many people believed, even maybe some of the scribes and Pharisees, they believed that John the Baptist was a prophet. He was a man of God. So if they admit that he was a man of God, and we already know that Jesus' ministry is very much linked with John the Baptist's ministry. We even go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 13 and 17, when the angel came to John the Baptist's father. What does he say to Zechariah? He says in verse 18 of chapter 1, actually going to, uh, to verse, uh, verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, talking about Jesus, and the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So John the Baptist's ministry is linked with Jesus's ministry. To approve John, therefore, should mean you should approve Jesus. We even see, it, which is one of the coolest parts of the early parts of Luke, is when uh, Elizabeth goes to Mary and, G, and John in the womb leaps with joy at the discussion of the coming Lord. It's an amazing point of a, a detail in the life and the birth story of Christ. We even see that in verse chapter 1, 60, 76 through 77, this is Zechariah prophesying about his son. He says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, 
ways to know to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. John 3:16. John has grown up. Uh, Jesus has been born. Jesus, John is baptizing in verse 16 of chapter 3. G- John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he is mightier than I, is coming to the, sh- the strap of whom sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is John the Baptist's testimony. He has been consistent with his testimony his entire ministry. He is not the Christ. He is not the Messiah. There is one coming. I testify of him. I come to prepare the way for him. John testifies this. This is the origin of his baptism, to prepare people through repentance, that they will repent of their sins, and then put their faith in Christ Jesus, the one who proclaims good news and brings good news through himself. We see that in John chapter 1, we see John continuing to testify about who Jesus is. This is John's consistent uh, testimony and consistent word about Jesus. John 1.29. The next day he saw, this is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says in 32.34, And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is what John consistently said. The prophets, I mean the chief priests and the scribes and these elders, they heard these things. And so Jesus is saying, well, where did John the Baptist come from? And they basically have this discussion and dialogue with each other because they're like, well, okay, we're in a trap. If we say he is from God, well, that means that we are basically saying that we should actually believe Jesus because they're linked. If we say from man, the people will be upset and they will kill us because they love John. They are in a situation. They're in a conundrum and they don't know how to get out. So they actually, the only way out, the only way that they can figure out how to get out of this is basically not to answer the question at all. Which is interesting because I think that, that is really kind of where a lot of people are and they're trying to, trying to answer the question who Jesus is. Jesus' is authority from God, it's clearly demonstrated that Christ is from God. That his authority came from God. He said this consistently. John the Baptist testified of this. We know that Jesus was from God. Why? Because of all the miracles that he did, his supernatural power. I mean, even in John chapter 3, the, you know, in, the, in that story, in that narrative, uh, where Jesus is, is, is talking with uh, Nicodemus, and we get to John 3.16 passage in this dialogue. What does Nicodemus say about Jesus? He says in verse chapter 3, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know, we know, that you're a teacher come from God. We know this. So he's already identifying it. You had to be from God because you've done all these miracles. You have to be someone from God. Jesus affirms his identity. He never denies that he is not from the Father, that that's where his authority comes from. The evidence is clearly there. The evidence is so clear. The demonstration of who Jesus is and where he came from is so clear. 
But I think what ends up happening for most people is very similar to what we get in the story. They just decide not to answer because they don't want to admit that the evidence is quite compelling. When we think about the historical Jesus, there are very few, people, very few historians that will deny that Jesus didn't exist. Most historians will admit that Jesus did live. They also, the issue of the historical resurrection. If you go to Israel, if you go to Jerusalem, there is, there's a tomb where Jesus' body is not there. You can go try to find Muhammad, you can go try to find David, you can go find a lot of other leaders throughout history, and you will find their burial grounds. If they have found it, you will not find anywhere where Jesus Christ lays. He is risen from the dead. That is an historical fact. It's compelling. The evidence is, is clearly there. The issue is, and I think Paul gets at this in Romans chapter 1, is that people suppress the truth. They know what is true. They know the evidence is compelling. They don't want to admit it, so they just do what these guys do here. And they go, oh, they just don't answer at all. They deny the truth. They desire to believe the lie. They would rather live in a world where God's not there and God's not involved and God is silent than a world where God is there and God does create and God does send his son into the world who does great things and dies and raises from the dead. Why would you want to live in a world where there's a world where God doesn't exist or he's silent and he doesn't send his son to save? God can do the impossible. He sent his son into the world and his son died and his son rose from the dead. And the evidence is compelling. The evidence is clear. It's been demonstrated. It's been consistent. And yet people suppress the truth and desire to believe the lie. The second point is this, is the kingdom of God is given to the unexpected. I guess this is the third point. The kingdom of God is given to the unexpected. If you're taking notes, and I go through past the, the second one, is John the Baptist from heaven or from men. The third point is the kingdom of God is given to the unexpected. So Jesus... And he responds to their non-answer to his, his, his challenge. They kind of decide by PR reasons or political reasons or whatever reasons, they decide not to answer. And Jesus, being who Jesus is, says, well, then I'm not going to give you the answer to your question if you want to answer mine. So Jesus gives a, he tells a parable. He tells a story to the people. And I'm assuming here that based off the end of the passage that these men, these Pharisees, these, these, I mean, these, these chief priests, these scribes, these elders are also in attendance and hearing this parable. So Jesus gives this parable, starting in verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it, let it out to tenants who went into another country for a long while. This, this owner has planted this vineyard. And, and in time you're reading a, par a parable, it's clearly that the owner of this, of this vineyard is God. And we even, it's so cool about even the imagery of vineyard. Uh, the Bible is very consistent, even in the Old Testament, talking about vineyards and relating it back to God and to Israel in particular. Even in Genesis chapter 2, I mean, God, what did he do? He planted a garden and placed Adam and Eve in the garden. We see in Isaiah chapter 5, 1 through 7, how God refers to Israel as a vineyard that he planted. Isaiah chapter 5. Let, my, let me sing for my beloved my song, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. 
And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedges, and it shall be devoured. I, I will break down its walls, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall, not, it, will, it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah and, his, and are, are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, and behold, an outcry. So basically, Jesus in this parable is really kind of referring back to Isaiah chapter 5, that God created a vineyard. He planted a vineyard. And he put tenants, tenants, he leased out this vineyard to tenants, to servants, to farmers. And he left for another country for a long while. He put someone in authority over the vineyard, but he is ultimately over authority. And we see this later in the parable that he sends back servants to collect the fruit from the vineyard. And what did the farmers do? They rejected and beat the servants. And the servants represent prophets and, and other people and leaders that God sent to Israel to preach and to proclaim uh, God's uh, word and, and to proclaim their, their sins and, 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 and hopefully they would be convicted of their sins and convicted of their idolatry and turn back to God. But what do they do? They rejected the prophets. They rejected God and they sent these servants back. And he would send three he had three different servants to go and, and gather the fruit, and they were beaten. So the owner decides, well, I'll send my beloved son. It's interesting that Jesus uses not just, well, he sent his son. No, he uses the object of his beloved son, a son that he loves. His choice son, his, his, his firstborn, his most precious son, he sends to these farmers. Even though they've already beaten Three of his servants, he still sends his son. Maybe they'll listen to him. Maybe they will revere him. Maybe they will honor him, unlike the servants that I've sent before. Maybe they will honor the heir. And instead, the heir comes, and they basically have this conversation with one another. Oh, the heir is coming. Now let's kill him and take the inheritance for ourselves. If we kill the son, we can basically own the vineyard a conflict and authority. We have authority over the vineyard, not you, not your son, not your servants. We have the authority, and the, th the son is a threat to our authority. And so, therefore, we will kill him. They take him outside the vineyard. Very interesting that Jesus is crucified outside the city of Jerusalem. Jesus is basically telling this story about himself, that you're going, my, my father sent you sent me to you, and you've rejected me, and you've now will, you will take me out of the city, and you will crucify me. And then Jesus, and how great of a, a storyteller that he is, he provides a question of application. He says to the people, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? If the owner's son is killed by these farmers, what do you think the owner's going to do? He will come and destroy the tenants. And then he will give the vineyard to others. 
It's interesting because what Jesus is saying here is that the Father, God, when you do this, he will reject you, he will judge you, and then he will give his his blessings to someone else, not you. And what Jesus is referring to is the Gentiles. Everyone in this room, if you're a Christian, you're a part of this story because you're the others. And their response to that is surely not. It's the only time in the New Testament, that we're, other than where Paul says this in Romans, surely not. May it never be, is basically what they're saying. May it never be that the vineyard is taken from us and given to others. We have authority over it, not anyone else. How dare God give it to anyone else? But what are we learning? Is that the authority of God alone is over the vineyard. That God is the one that has authority over his people. He's the one that has authority over his kingdom. No one else. He shares that power with no one else. And Jesus came to do what? To bring good news to the poor. And he will give his salvation to the poor. He will give his salvation to Gentiles. And the Jews will reject it. And it will be taken away. And this is the last point. Salvation rests fully in Christ Jesus. Salvation rests fully in, on Christ Jesus. He then looks directly at them and then quotes scripture. What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He is, he is quoting Psalms 118.22. Jesus directly speaks to their challenge with God's word. He looks right at them and he speaks God's word because why? Because he has confidence in the authority of God's word because God's word alone has authority, not them. They're surely not, and by no means, never, never, that has no authority. These chief priests and these elders and these scribes have no authority whatsoever. They think they have authority, but they have no authority. God's word has authority. God has authority, and Jesus speaks the words of God directly to them. The stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. The stone is, Jesus is talking about himself. The builders are Israel and the Jews and the world. I'm I'm expanding this imagery to describe many in the church throughout history who persecuted those who stood on the authority of Christ alone and said, you don't have authority, we do. Those are the ones that Jesus is also referring to. The stone is Christ Jesus. The stone is salvation that is in Christ Jesus alone. He is the cornerstone that salvation rests alone. Deliverance and reconciliation and adoption and justification, your redemption from sins rests solely in Christ alone. It rests in nothing else. Not your works, not your deeds, nothing else, only in Christ. But there are many in the in this century here, in the context of Jesus, and also beyond throughout history, who have used their place and have used their position and their title to say, we have authority over God, not God does not have authority over us. We have authority over the people, not God. And what happens to these people? What happens to these groups? Everyone who falls on that stone will be shattered, will be crushed. By the authority of God, Christ Jesus was given all authority and salvation rests on him fully, and all who reject his authority and place salvation in anything else will be judged. He's the cornerstone. If you stumble over him, you shall be shattered, you shall be crumbled, you shall be destroyed. Many, 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 many people have worn the symbols of Christ, have decorated their homes 
with the symbols of Christ, but yet have rejected the cornerstone. Because they believe, they believe that they actually have authority over their lives. Or they've come to believe that they are the ones that have authority over God's people and God, Christ alone is the cornerstone. It all comes down to authority. Do you believe you're in control of your actual life? There are, this is a quote, this is John Calvin. He writes in, in, in his commentary on this passage. He says, There are some who believe they speak for God, that they have authority over Christ's church, when in actuality they merely just hold titles of the church. And Calvin is primarily talking about the Pope. Because there are many people, and, and not just in the Catholicism, but there's many people, even in the Protestant world, who believe they have the authority over the church, when really they just have titles. Christ is the one who has authority, and salvation rests only in him. And if you think you're a rival to God, that you're somehow equal with God, or you put anything in, in anywhere unequal with God, you will stumble over Christ. Christ is in control over his church and his kingdom. If you're wrestling with his authority or you're siding with a group who believe they're in control, you will be crushed by Christ Jesus. You'll be crushed. Some will say, surely not me, Lord. Surely not us, Lord. Look, look, look what we've done. Look at our buildings. Look at our stained glass windows. Look at the crosses on our building. Look at us. Look at us. And he will say, I'm giving it to others who trust and rest in me alone. You have put up a front against God, deceiving yourself that you're in control, that you have authority, you're in that you're in charge, that some other group speak for Christ, and all I have to do is be a good inherent of my orders and my rules. Unfortunately, that group, that group that you trust, that group that you're following, is not in charge. They're not in charge. You're following something that's not in charge. Christ is in charge. The word of God is in charge. Christ has all authority. He is the final word on his church. Salvation rests fully on him and him alone. He is the cornerstone. No one else has that title, and no one else will have that title ever, ever. So you have to ask yourself, are you trusting in another authority that's not Christ? And it may be that you're trusting your actual self, that you're actually the Lord over your life, that you're actually the one in charge. And if you do that, if you continue to do that, and I know in a room like this, there's going to be people in this room that say, I have control over my own life. There's no one that tells me what to do. And that my question is, do you feel in charge? Do you feel in charge? Looking at God's word, and it says that he is the cornerstone. And if you stumble over that, if you think that there is a rival to Christ, if you think that you're, that you're equal with Christ who has a, when it comes to authority over your life, you will stumble over the cornerstone and you will be judged. You will be crushed. Take Jesus here who proclaims the good news to all people. And that good news is that you're not in charge, that God is in charge. And that God is not only that he's in charge, but he loves you and has sent his son into the world to save you and to redeem you, to take over your life, to be the Lord of your life, to give you eternal life, to guide you, to give you peace, to give you joy, that you no longer have to create your own happiness, that God loves you and blesses you. But you have to trust Christ and you have to remove yourself from the throne and realize that Christ is Lord and he is the cornerstone and your salvation rests 
solely on him. Let's pray.